Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Hello, Regenerates. Welcome to episode 19 of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. This time my guest is Tom Newmark, who is a leader in the soil-centered regenerative agriculture movement, working with the Carbon Underground uh, that he co-founded with Larry Kopald, my previous guest. And uh, it was really a pleasure to get to connect with Tom, and I think you will find this a very inspiring conversation. Tom is always uh, inspiring and uplifting in his articulation of the potential of soil and regenerative agriculture to transform um, the climate crisis into an opportunity for a much different relationship between our human economy and the agricultural sector and food and textiles and and earth and soils and uh, we hit on a lot in this podcast we discuss the work that tom has done to bring soil health and regenerative agriculture to the center of conversations with c-suite level leaders in the corporate world, the, the work that the Carbon Underground has done uh, internationally with governments, um, and generally explores the sort of top-down nodal approach of, of transforming the understanding of, of global leaders uh, to their fiduciary responsibility as it relates to ecological health and specifically soil health in our agricultural systems. Um, yeah, fantastically fun conversation with Tom. And I think uh, leaders, startup leaders, corporate leaders, investors, um, and the general public will find this conversation um, enlivening and deeply useful as well because Tom carries with him a wealth of experience as a uh, corporate leader. And so his his perspective there, I think, is um, compelling and important to consider in how the movement towards regenerative agriculture as the cornerstone of of our civilization, um, with, with food and agriculture being the world's largest um, economic, you know, driver, or the world's biggest industry and the world's biggest contributor to climate change. It is, it is, if it can be transformed to be carbon negative in the way that uh, I do believe is possible, um, and we can achieve the the transformation of the game. That is to say, uh, how companies become profitable and re. Uh, reintegrate ecological value into that economic game. It transforms competitive dynamics and it it will transform society. So I hope this is an enlivening and interesting conversation for you all. Thanks for listening in and uh, feel free to leave comments and uh, questions. I'll do my best to uh, engage. And for those of you who um, are regular listeners, please do hop by the Regen Network Telegram uh, 
channel and uh, post questions there because it's hard for me to I don't know you know what venue most people are listening on and and it's easier to sort of have a central point of engagement and I'm pretty active there at the region network telegram group um, so hopefully I'll look forward to chatting with you there if you've got questions or comments you can also of course uh, ping me on Twitter uh, Gregory underscore Landway on Twitter and uh, I'd do my best to respond there as well. Uh, stay healthy um, and hasta la regeneración siempre. Enjoy the show. Hey, welcome, Tom, to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I've been looking forward to uh, I've been looking forward to this for a little while since I started the podcast uh, a few months ago. You're always one of my favorite people to to get into deep conversations with. And um, yeah, I, thanks for, thanks for joining in the middle of sort of the shelter at home <laughs> coronavirus um, global weirding m moment. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a, it's a pleasure, Gregory. And I, I've, I've so enjoyed our conversations over the many years that we have been together, worked together, tramped together. Uh, I consider you uh, a young elder to me. Uh, you have really inspired me and, and enlarged my thinking on on topics uh, so precious to the regenerative movement. So it'll be a delight to have a conversation with you. Well, thanks for those kind words. I feel the same. So, yeah. Um... So my first question to just like kick off this, this conversation, I think is, you know, what are the opportunities of, for the regenerative movement that this particular moment in time um, has, like sort of seeds of opportunity in the Corona pandemic? Well, I, I, I think there are two that, that leap to the forefront. Uh, number one, uh, we in the Carbon Underground, and that's the, the NGO that Larry Copold and I created, and, and you're certainly very aware of our work, Gregory. Uh, we in the Carbon Underground do a lot of work with major corporations and governments. And uh, whereas two years ago, it was, it was hard to get people's uh, serious attention focused on regenerative sourcing. And it was really difficult to the point of impossible to get government leaders to treat the topic as um, uh, top of mind within all of the issues confronting government. Now it's a different story. Uh, we uh, recently were authorized by the government of Thailand to uh, help the 35 million farmers there transition from conventional agriculture to regenerative agriculture. And there are a lot of nuances and, and um, uh, uh, lines of energy and finance involved in that. But it, the basic concept is just what I said. You've got mm -hmm. one of the largest 
uh, uh, food producing, food exporting nations in the world uh, resolving to support a transition to regenerative agriculture. That is a reflection. Now, Thailand is the pioneer. So they, they get credit for being the first at a, at a national level to uh, uh, announce that intention. But we're, yeah. he we're, hearing, uh, the, we're hearing the stirrings, the, the, uh, the first steps being taken by other governments around the world. And there are, there are governmental subunits that are in different parts of the world uh, making similar declarations. Now, the proof of this, the proof of, of the, the, the power to actually uh, have this advance, the regenerative uh, mission, will be in the, uh, the, the soil pudding, right? We'll, we'll, we'll actually, let's see what happens. But at least mm. at the, at, in, in terms of a national government announcing its intention to support and to actually put the carbon underground and our work to, in creating a regenerative standard into the national agricultural agenda for the nation, that's happened. So that's an important sign. And then correspondingly, Larry and I are in conversations with many of the world's largest food uh, purchasers uh, on, on a supply chain level. Uh, it's hard to imagine uh, corporations larger than the ones with whom we are dealing. And many major corporations are declaring interest in having uh, their uh, commodities sourced regeneratively and to build a regenerative component into uh, these, the, the specs that these corporations will be insisting upon. And, and in turn, once they're in the specs, that means management within those companies are rewarded, uh, is, management is rewarded, for delivering those specs. So you, you start to have enormous corporate power uh, in, the, in the hundreds of billions of dollars of purchasing, looking for regeneratively sourced food. And it's not there yet, not at that scale. So no, this, yeah, it's not, right. not yet. Right, so this is a, this is a remarkably exciting moment it's it's pregnant with with opportunity gregory because you 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 have you have national and international leaders on a governmental level saying we have to fix the broken agriculture systems in our countries because mm -hmm. soil is disappearing i mean i i when i was uh, meeting with, and I won't specify the leaders, and I won't even specify the country because I think they deserve uh, the 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 confidentiality of the disclosure is is appropriate. But where where national leaders are saying 
uh, the, our farming system is broken. The mm -hmm. soil is, the soil has been killed. Uh, it's being washed away. Uh, it, what's remaining is inert and unproductive. And uh, this is happening worldwide. There's a, there's a book coming out, uh, George Monbio in, uh, his, in his blog a couple of days ago, uh, mentioned a book that was coming out. I don't remember, Gregory, the name of the book, but we could easily find it and have it be a, a, a reference note to, to this podcast. And the mm -hmm. book talking about how with a 1.5 to 3 degree Fahrenheit increase in temperature, uh, they'll start to be a uh, major breakdown in uh, the productivity of the, the major crops that, that feed the planet. And that, uh, that amount of temperature increase from where we are right now, that's inevitable. That's not something that, that uh, is really it, it up, up for debate. I mean, right now it's just baked in. Unless we do something very dramatic to reverse the arrow of global warming and, and global climate chaos, which you and I know is possible. Because if, if, if a large enough area of the world uh, converts from conventional extractive, exploitative, totalitarian agriculture to uh, an agriculture that nourishes the commons, that restores and regenerates the commons, then there's an opportunity globally to reverse the, the direction of, of the climate crisis. But even locally, there, there are data locally showing that in, a, like for example, in, in the Northern Great Plains, in the, the area that, that bridges of the United States and Canada. There was research mm -hmm. a few years ago showing that the conversion of, of land over to permanent cover cropping from the type of, of uh, bare earth row crop, uh, uh, heavily tilled agriculture, that the conversion over to permanent cover crop with, with, with no till was enough to have a dramatic effect in that large low in that large regional area where the temperatures in that regional area and the rainfall in that regional area normalized so mm -hmm. we we it, it is and you and i have seen this around the world where it is possible to change the you can't changing the global climate is is incredibly ambitious i think it's doable but ambitious but we can actually affect change at a local level that is quite dramatic yeah and so i, I mean I'm i would i would push back on the i mean i i a i super appreciate the sort of like prudent conservatism of you know not being hand wavy about being able to affect the global climate. But I just want to say we can and we will. Yeah, well, I'm okay. Because <laughs> we I'm already have. 
sure. look, we yeah. already have, as, you know, just sort of like preaching to the choir, we, we already have affected the global environment, uh, climate, you know, and, and the, and just, for, you know, for our, for our listeners, one of these core premises, I think, to the regenerative movement is embracing the understanding of um, not just the effect of, you know, carbon emissions on global climate change, but the effect on the changes of land use. And that's what you're speaking to, which is when you, right. when you don't have bare earth and instead you have cover crops or native prairie, it radically transforms and normalizes climate. And what people miss in the climate conversation is the effect of the hydrological cycle on warming and cooling. I think it isn't a linear, you know, like the greenhouse effect isn't just about carbon. It's about, you know, the hydrological cycle as well and rainfall and, you know, the cooling that happens when, when precipitation happens and, and the effect that that, that positive kind of a feedback cycle it has on photosynthesis and then therefore soil carbon, you know, there's just this really beautiful kind of upward spiral of regeneration that takes place when we change certain ecological thresholds in our farming practices. And I'm just, I'm enormously excited about for me, for, for the, the sort of coronavirus opportunity, everything you're saying is resonating. And I think just sort of landing it in the, finding a way to have global awareness of the regenerative potential of living systems. What happens when you stop flying globally for a few months? <laughs> what happens, you know, and, and then just sort of correlating that in our storytelling to what happens if you change all of the cropping to no-till? Right. What happens if you change all the grazing to holistic management? What happens if you change all of the, you know, tropical production to agroforestry, all of a sudden, wow, the, the planet is transformed in a way that I'm just, I'm hopeful that this moment of kind of like a shakeup and like a, you know, disruption in people's day to day, you know, if we can, as a, as a movement, if we can invite that understanding and, relationship between our economy and the planet and just sort of like lay out these pretty simple factual interactions at the intersection between agriculture and ecological health. I, I think we could see some very swift galvanized action. And, and, and what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, the seeds of that action are already there. Like nation states like Thailand are already saying yes. Big, big corporates are already saying yes. So, yeah, I mean, it's just so invigorating. And, it, and I think in times like this, having something to be invigorated by is really important. And, there, and there's a corresponding, and, and, and it operates uh, when a government, when a Thailand or uh, are a major international food uh, brand when when they go public with the regenerative uh, agenda, it, everybody notes it. But what we're not seeing is what's happening much more quietly on a, on the level of the commons. 
And mm-hmm. since you're, you've, you, you directed me to reflect on, on COVID-19 and, and what, what is the maybe message or our opportunity that we're perceiving because of that, we're seeing around the world a, a rising up of a, a, a more caring, loving, supportive uh, community spirit. There, it's, it's, it's really, um, there, are, there are some people you look at and you grimace and you, you go, what's wrong with, with humans? But there are so many examples of people's sacrifice and, and people pitching in to uh, deliver medicines and to deliver food and to, and to be supportive and to help the, the, the healthcare practitioners and, 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 and emergency responders. I, I'm inspired by this, this stirring, this, uh, I mean, you know, when, whenever, when everything is super, when everybody's making lots of money and, and which, by the way, when did that ever happen? But when there's the perception that everything is, is, is just humming uh, and, and moving along perfectly, uh, maybe, it, maybe it's not the moment to test the, the love and the resilience of the human spirit. But this is a moment where we're gripped in such a, an, um, an existential health crisis that uh, it shakes our souls and it's and it stirs us up and many people around the world are responding in a in a beautiful way to take care of uh their 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 fellow human beings and part of that may well be in in uh having people re-examine their relationship to their soil and to their their food production. Uh, I, I'm seeing that. I, even in New York, uh, I have a, a friend that that runs a a uh, the, the uh, an organization, Local Roots. Um, mm. I don't know whether you know uh, Wen Jay, but she is a, a remarkable local leader of the local organic food scene. And she, she and her organization are delivering locally grown, uh, beautiful produce uh, to people's apartments in New York. Mm-hmm. It is like it is to me. This is a this is a moment where the 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 human the human spirit can rise. Yeah, sometimes in these crises. Uh, dark and unpleasant aspects of humanity manifest. But I think that more often what we're seeing right now is uh, a a really inspiring stories of people caring for one another. Like Mm -hmm. I'm right now, I'm, you know, my, my coronavirus uh, area of, uh, of shelter in place happens to be, uh, and I'm calling you from Hollywood, Los Angeles. Uh, uh, you know I live in Costa Rica, but I also have a, a little apartment here in, in L.A. because we have children mm-hmm. and grandchildren here. And just everywhere for the last month, 
people have been so caring and so tender and and so loving it's everywhere everywhere we go every interaction we have what we're experiencing is uh, uh, the interactions are suffused with a with a caring supportive energy and imagine if that translates over to our farmers and to our farmland I, I think that we're in it I think that we're in a moment where uh, the, the 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 human condition is being tested and i have the feeling that we will rise and show uh, um, the glory will shine uh that's that's certainly my hope and that's my perhaps uh, inordinately optimistic perception uh <laughs> so may it be <laughs> yeah. make it so yeah, <laughs> I mean, I say, I resonate with that. I, I mean, I think the <clears throat> the opportunity in times like this, where just our humanness and our interconnection, and you know, I mean, gosh, just the awareness, the stark awareness on a couple of levels. Like one is, wow, having a secure relationship with food growing in times of unstable, like destabilizing times, unstable times is, is essential. And so if a place like New York city could be producing 60, 70% of its food, you know, in rooftop gardens and nearby farms and, and then have a local food shed su supporting the rest. And, you know, if we can transition our global supply, wow, look at how much you know how much better off people are i think economically and health-wise but, but also the 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 glaring reality that our healthcare system is only as good as other countries healthcare systems and other countries healthcare systems are only as good as ours because if you have a global pandemic that overwhelms a country it comes to your country next and coupling that with, you know, climate, like there's just, I'm hopeful that this, this mix that we're in, it just shows the, the interconnectedness and it's sort of like care for each other and care for the world or else, because you can see what happens if you don't, you know, it's right. It can, it can re resonate. It's like this beautiful opportunity where, altruism and selfishness intersect in care for, you know, your other humans and the greater than human world is just like care, just care at all, at all those levels. And we're all better off. We're, we're more fulfilled. We're healthier. And in times like this, we survive. I am, uh, I'm inspired uh, I'm, I'm energized. I feel, I feel the, the richness of opportunity at this moment. You and I both know that regenerative agriculture uh, has the ability quickly to revive, recharge, replenish uh, uh, damaged ecosystems. It, it really doesn't take more than a few years for the biology and the soil 
to begin to um, celebrate and 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 flex its remarkable muscles. And when that happens, food production uh, is more reliable. Uh, the water cycle is restored. The soil water battery uh, uh, protects communities uh, during periods of of climate extreme. We've seen that. We've seen it all over the world, Gregory. I mean, I. Mm-hmm. Even before I was aware of the term regenerative agriculture, uh, when uh, my daughter Sarah Newmark and I were uh, in India meeting with uh, with with uh, uh, spice farmers, herb farmers in uh, remote areas of of uh, Karnataka, we would go to one community where the rivers and streams and ponds had disappeared and uh, everything had dried up. The communities were basically uh, dust in the wind. There was nothing there. There was no future. But just 10 kilometers up the road in a different community that had organized around the principles of uh, a regenerative, more conscious, organic farming, uh, the, the, the streams had recharged, the, the, the rice paddies had filled, the production of food was 2x what it had been even just a few years before. And it was literally, uh, it was night and day, it was dust versus lush green, it was, it was dried rivers and cracked lake beds versus um, abundant water. And this is before I even heard of the concept of regenerative agriculture. And, mm-hmm. and it's possible. It's, it, 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 I mean, the people who are listening to this, there's probably a, a, a self-selection. People know that you are a leader of the world regenerative movement. So people are coming to your podcast already probably believing in the, the, the opportunity, the power, the glory uh, of regenerative agriculture. But if there are some uh, folks who are hearing about this for the first time, let, let both uh, of us assure you that this is not some uh, laboratory, hypothetical, uh, academic concept that remains to be tested to be proven. This has been proven in the laboratories of, of uh, millions and millions of acres of smallholder agriculture already all around the world. Mm-hmm. This is, this yeah. is, we know that this works. We've seen it work. We, there, in fact, there is no alternative because the current agricultural system, which relies on uh, synthetic chemical inputs of fertility and, 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 and pest control, that's, that system is failing. And so the only possible way to feed the world is to do so with the help of the countless infinities of microorganisms in the soil who were eager to recreate the tilth of the soil 
if we just give them a chance. And that's what we're doing, right? Worldwide. That's right. At, at the time of the airing of this, uh, which will be in a few weeks um, from the time that we talk, probably, um, I, I, I may, may release earlier than that. But, uh, you know, anyway, at the rhythm, current rhythm of release, this, this will be out in a few weeks. And, and preceding it, this will be episode 19. Preceding it back, episode 17, um, which hasn't quite been released yet, is with Lauren from A Growing Culture. And so... Right. Um, listeners who, who got a chance to, to listen to that will already be familiar with sort of the campesino, peasant, smallholder, farmer, um, agroecological revolution that's been taking place for many years. And um, there also was a, you know, I, just like as a placeholder and a I think a conversation I'm excited to have with you is, you know, in Lauren and I's conversation, Lauren sort of has a, he has a critique of what he sees as a blind spot of the in quotes regenerative movement um, around sort of the emphasis on ecological regeneration and ecological performance as what we have to drive towards. Um, And, you know, he's a very passionate uh, proponent of social change and evolution of our society to be more just and fair and um, connective, which I know you're also passionate about. But I have the sense that there's like a, a healthy and dynamic tension um, between the sort of strategy and mission of Carbon Underground to accelerate and scale and to engage sort of existing governmental and corporate structures and just, you know, say, hey, let's regenerate soil while we do this and sort of stripping out the the social justice lens of that conversation um, versus Lauren's perspective, which is sort of like the social change has to come first somehow. So I'd actually love to just have a conversation about that because, you know, um, I think there's sort of a one of the things I hope that this podcast serves is sort of long form conversations in which the, the, we realize the distance between apparently different positions actually seems to shrink as we get a more nuanced understanding of what people are actually saying, I suppose. So anyway, I'd love to hear your your thoughts on kind of the relationship between and, and, and stra- strategic imperatives in the time of climate crisis between emphasizing ecological health and addressing social justice and where those are connected or where they're opposed and, you know, what comes first and when and why, just from your perspective. Uh, a really important question. And uh, of course, I have high regard for Lauren and, and his work. And, uh, and, and I think that any, any loving, caring, thoughtful human being needs to be concerned about uh, the uh, unconscionably unjust and unfair uh, uh, economic and social structure that we have in place now. It's just 
it's it's not sustainable. Uh, the the uh, the crushing burdens uh, on on so many of uh, of the of the world's billions. Uh, really, really feeling the brunt of the of the ecological collapse, and they'll be the first to experience the pain, and they're already experiencing the profound pain. It it moves anyone with a with a heart to uh, to to want to have uh, a revolution in the way in which people are are treated in the world, uh, whether you call it. Uh, uh, a, a redistribution of wealth, or whether you refer to it uh, uh, as, in, in terms of the, the political democracy being allowed to actually work, uh, where, where the voices of individuals are allowed to actually uh, uh, speak and be heard and to organize. I, I, who, who, who looks out at this and says, it's okay for the, the overwhelming majority of people in the world to be crushingly destitute and starving and worried about whether they'll have another meal or, or you know, the, the subcontinent of India uh, looking at the absence of, of water in 10 years, uh, enough to where hundreds of millions of people can, can simply not be able to sustain their existence. So yes, of course, you have to look at at social justice and and the the organizing uh, malignancy of the current system, which allows for people to be uh, treated as cheap, fungible, and replaceable cogs in production. So that's just not going to work long term. But what we in the yeah. carbon underground do is we say, okay, who's got power right now? Yeah. Right now. Right this second. Uh, this is not to say that this will be the, the case in five years or in 15 years. But right now, who's got the ability to move the needle in a way that can by the planet and and the current species that occupy the planet time to sort out those social issues. And I mean, Lauren and I have had this very conversation, as you can imagine. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> and and we don't agree. And so yep. but it, it can be a respectful disagreement. But so when the carbon underground looks out of the world and does an inventory of who's got the power to pull the levers. Well, uh, world governments have the power, right? So that's, some, that's something to think about. But who's got power over the world governments? In, in fact, mm -hmm. the world governments are serving uh, what master? Ah, mm -hmm. how about, mm -hmm. how about yeah. the current, the, the incumbent regimes of economic power, the, the trillions of dollars in the agricultural, and I mean, agriculture, whether it's for food or for textile, it's, the, it's two of the top three uh, uh, businesses in the world, agriculture, um, textile, food, fossil fuels, that's it. 
So you're looking at yeah. enormous, enormous concentrations of wealth and power. And those concentrations of wealth and power actually control governments. So if you want to affect change right this second, one way is to go right to those that have power and make a very simple statement. All right, you, and I did this. I talked to, I, I used to be the CEO of a, of a multinational, uh, very substantial company in the food industry. And I have lots of friends who are in uh, the C-suites of major food companies. And I recently did a, a, a telephone survey and asked, how many of you are already having your supply chains disrupted because of climate chaos, the climate crisis? And every single one of them said they were. Every single CEO or, or head of supply chain of the major international food companies that I talked to, every one of them said that their supply chains are threatened by uh, climate chaos. I, I've been, I was in a meeting uh, six, seven years ago with a major clothing company. And uh, Larry Copold and I asked this clothing company, when you're doing your risk assessment for those events that could blow the wheels off your wagon and, and destroy your business, are you, are you calculating in your risk assessment that the world supply of cotton in 20 years may simply not be there because of mm -hmm. the destruction of soil, the absence of water, and, and the overall collapse of, of uh, food production? And the answer was, yes, we are aware of that. But, but see, every responsible business person, and, and here, if there are CEOs or, or COOs or uh, investors, major investors in companies that are in the food or textile space listening, you ask, ask the question, um, if there's no soil and there's no water, and this, the, whatever precious soil left has been depleted of uh, biological activity and uh, has no structure, uh, how's my company's 10-year uh, forecast looking? How's my investment looking? If, if, I'm, if I'm a fiduciary uh, of a pension fund and I'm investing in food or textile companies and those companies' supply chains uh, do, cannot right now see a way to secure the, the foods and textiles they need to support their business in 10 or 20 years, which every single CEO I talked to admitted was a risk that they were trying to manage. Well, bingo, Gregory. Now we've, yeah. got, now we've got people with power with everything, again, again it, it may be unjust, it may be unfair, it may be unequal, but it's right now what we've got. And if, if trillions of dollars of business are dependent on the ability to produce food during this time of climate cr 
crisis. And by the way, that means a broken water cycle. So yes, the hydrological cycle is broken. The soil cycle is broken. The carbon cycle is broken. It's not just temperature. It's all of those things are broken and they're all whipsawing us into a position of incredible vulnerability. So now you go to a major corporation that, that orders tens, hundreds of millions of dollars of name it, name your food, cacao, rice, sugar cane, doesn't matter, name it. All of them are worried. They all understand that their, that their very business model is subject to global climate pressures that they don't know how to manage, but we do. So, we, that, that's, why, that's why these corporate leaders are, are, are embracing the regenerative opportunity. And let me just say one last thing to Lauren and to, and to all those who put uh, social justice first. Like, I'm, I'm with you. It, it, it's heartbreaking to, to look out at, at an unjust world. But what we in the carbon underground say to ourselves every morning is, let's save, <laughs> let's, let's salvage what we can of, of life on Earth. We think it can be abundant and beautiful. Let's do everything we can right now to reverse the, the existential threat of the climate crisis. And then we can worry about the flavors of the utopia that we will create. And, I, and, and, and that then, we will get to that then, Gregory. We will get to that. But I want to debate the, 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 the flavors and the, the perfumes of utopia after we've saved the patients. And that's our strategy. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a couple of different layers here. I think sort of invoking triage here is, is worthwhile. I also think it's, it's very likely not an either or. You know, right. there's sort of a complementarity. And the, the, I would sort of say, you know, we have to do top down and bottom up at the same time and the nice thing is, is there's different people to focus on different <laughs> layers here and so absolutely uh, absolutely I, as having having being a person who's worked from both angles you know from uh, smallholder companies you know farmers around the world as well as big companies and currently my aim is to try to create sort of the framework and platform where there's a level playing field for the only objective shared reality, which is ecological health to be transmitted through the value streams and through the economic relationships. Um, I just sort of see it has to be both. You have to have both one way or the other, because in, for instance, in order to achieve transformation of, for 2 billion smallholder farmers and their local communities and their, you know, their small farms, they have to be engaged in a way that uplifts them and honors them. And so there's, there's a demand that you empower their cooperatives and their communities and shift the, you know, and, and we started this conversation talking about care 
and how care is somehow fundamental to unlocking the regenerative potential of landscapes. Um, I think the same thing is true when we're talking to the biggest corporates and the biggest governments that they start to understand again, that they're, if they're, if they're responsible fiduciaries, if they're responsible stewards and, and, and governors of the state or the, you know, the commons and, and, and the private sector, they will understand that the health of the farm and the farmer are inexorably linked. So I sort of see that, that the, I kind of applaud both strategies in, in essence. I'm very moved and, and agree with, I mean, in heated agreement with your analysis of the sort of the imperative of the moment to engage the powers that be, the powers that are, with the reality of their opportunity and their responsibility to right now take action to transform agriculture and and the industries that stem out of agriculture. So it's very compelling. It's very exciting. I, I, I sort of want to ask you as as someone who who's come from a substantial leadership in, in the private sector, um, in in the natural products industry and, and maintains relationships and you know you've sort of sat you you've been in positions of leadership and have connections with leaders and I wonder if you wouldn't mind commenting on from your perspective as a former fiduciary what is or what are the right ways I'm imagining there's a couple of them depending on the circumstance to internalize the previously externalized costs associated with degenerative agriculture in a way that fiduciaries are are connected in their balance sheet and their responsibility to shareholders with regenerative performance outcomes what's the way that that's going to work best for corporate leaders in your mind so i i have uh, as you would imagine i've had uh many, many uh, of these conversations with corporate leaders. And, uh, and I have a, a point of view. I, I have a strong, uh, a strong point of view on how that works. So yeah. I, I, I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to, again, strip uh, this example of the names of the individuals and the identities of the, uh, of the, the identity of the company. But I was in a meeting uh, with the CEO of uh, one of the many uh, multi-billion-dollar uh, food companies that I have fortunately been able to have dialogue with, and uh, and and this person and I were talking about their current food supply chain and the and and the dam the damaging consequences of the current nature of the agriculture producing the food for this supply for their supply chain and I said to the person so you understand you're smart you're a, a brilliant person you 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 understand how the ecology works here how does the movie end if we don't change Oh, the movie ends with, with uh, three or four large 
uh, uh, industrial agricultural uh, concerns dominating the agriculture in the in our region. Uh, it ends with family farms being wiped out. It ends with the destruction of the ecosystem and the death of the myth of of uh, ecological um, integrity of, of our product. Wow, mm. right? So he like yeah. so I asked I asked the CEO, how does the movie end? You know, every CEO, how do you we, you know game theory is really simple. You announce the rules of the game and you determine the starting position and the outcome is determined. So the rules of the current game the rules of the current agricultural extractive destructive system, we know those rules. The rules are to disregard the, the wholeness, the biology, the life force, uh, the self-repair regenerating energy of a system and just con consider soil as dirt and pour into the dirt chemicals to force it to produce food in a way wholly inconsistent with how nature produces food. So that, you know, that's, you and I can- So, have, so, so let me, let me, that's right. a brilliant framing. And, and I guess maybe a better way of articulating yeah, but, but my you, question wait, 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 is- Wait, Gregory, Gregory? Yeah. Let me just give you the punchline. Great. Of that conversation with the CEO. I said, okay, so if that's how the movie ends, what could we do to, uh, to mobilize the extraordinary organizing genius and innovation and creativity and energy of a corporation? I've run a big corporation. I know it's exciting, Gregory. People who've never had the pleasure or the panic of running a big corporation, that to actually have all the all the creativity and the energy and the and the pride and the 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 uh, the, the uh, maybe the hubris <laughs> of of all the people working together, it's remarkable. How do we harness that? And so I said to the CEO, "Well, if you know that you're." future is imperiled because of the current agricultural method. And if you are aware that there are ways of producing foods that recharge and regenerate the ecosystem, why don't you build into the key performance indicators, the KPIs? That's a term of art within the the, the, the mm -hmm. business community. Why don't we build regeneration into the KPIs of every single manager in your company so that people are economically rewarded for the regeneration that they are achieving because that will benefit your company and that will mean your company will have a 10 or 20 year business plan. You can look and and because people will do what they're paid to do, and you will you can only manage what you measure. So can we build into your KPIs, criteria, standards, measuring tools, and then compensation for people engaged in regenerative conduct? And 
I actually created a, a model KPI for this company. And the CEO said, okay, well, that's great. But are there, are there measuring rods? Are there metrics that I can use? Because this can't be purely subjective. And I responded by saying, well, first of all, it can be purely subjective. You've got lots of KPIs that are purely subjective. So don't tell me that, that, that you know, it has to be all 100% based on observable, uh, quantifiable data. But yeah, but there are also data points that, that can inform each of these uh, KPIs. And, and we've built them out. Now, to date, I have not seen one corporation, uh, one major uh, uh, international cor food corporation, as of yet, uh, adopt KPIs of regeneration into their company writ large so that all people are judged by it. But I believe this is going to happen just as surely as people are judged and met, man, are and evaluated and rewarded or punished for not meeting your sales targets or not meeting your quality control uh, targets. I believe that in the next few years, everyone involved in, in major food corporate agricultural businesses will be evaluated by is your company, is what you're doing for the company destroying the basis of the company's future or are you engaged in activities that are securing your company's future and therefore value for the shareholders? That's coming. So to me, the, the, the strategy is work with big power centers at major agricultural corporations and then build into their management KPIs that will measure and then reward regeneration. Great. I, I agree. Have you, have you seen the work of uh, the reporting 3.0 group? Actually, no. Um, well, well worth looking at. I actually think um, Bill and I, who's the founder there, are going to um, have a chat on here in this forum sometime in the next few weeks. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's sort of an international uh, group. Many, many large corporates engaged with that in, in sort of the reinvention of corporate reporting KPIs and, you know, key, key performance indicators and you know, associated incentive structures, et cetera. So there's a lot of cool work there. There's actually a, a pretty robust body of work that if, if folks who are listening are engaged in um, in the corporate world, which I know some of my listeners are, um, just sort of a pointer there to reporting 3.0. There's some great work um, happening, you know, where great. people are sharing and open sourcing companies that have taken steps one way or another are sort of open sourcing that and, you know, tr tr sharing what works and what doesn't. So it's a, it's a cool, uh, cool community there. And, you know, I sort of wonder how do we, I, I agree that from a decision-making perspective, 
sort of baking in a, a new way of reporting and accounting into corporate structures is is a needed step. I'm I'm also curious to hear your thoughts about the role of um, you know markets, be they carbon or biodiversity or ecological quality <laughs> trading schemes and or other forms of sort of contractual or or legally binding agreements with society. Um, you know, and I, I, I'm intentionally blurring the lines here between, you know, sort of uh, market mechanisms that are built to value public goods, which, you know, are considered in classical economics, you know, market failures and more commons based or sort of uh, community driven agreements, because I think they're they're trying to achieve the same thing. So I'm just curious what, what the, you know, agreement, not sort of within organizations, but between organizations and communities. What are your thoughts there? What what might work? Are there any examples that inspire you? Um, and what's the role and relationship between internal reporting and sort of external contracts about performance around the health of the commons? Well, I, I will uh, observe that I think you're much more of an expert on, on those points than I am, Gregory. So I appreciate your asking me my opinion, but uh, I certainly defer to your uh, uh, years and years of work on this. We, we in the Carbon Underground uh, think that we have to uh, we have to create mechanisms for ecosystem service uh, payments, rewards, recognition for those, those farmers and ranchers that are doing the good work. It has to happen. Um, uh, in order to make that possible, uh, and again, this is where you and I will have a pretty rich set of information. We need to have scalable, uh, economically uh, affordable uh, measuring tools to be able to, uh, first, we, first we define uh, the, the ecosystem benefit, and then we can affordably on a broad landscape basis, on a national basis, uh, the, uh, the measuring capability. And there are so many people chasing that right now. And there's so much debate right now as to whether it can be done by satellite, whether it can be done uh, by modeling, the, you know, the, the, the sort of comet modeling approach, uh, whether uh, we're soon to see, which I believe we are, uh, very affordable soil sensor technology that will be pennies per, per acre for really precise real-time data. Once we get that, that, and I would prefer to see it not on a modeling basis, but on a real data basis, Gregory, I'd like to hope that either through flux towers or satellite uh, imagery or 
uh, through soil sensors. And I think I, from what I'm seeing and hearing and in my conversations, I think we're maybe a year to two years away from really having breakthroughs there that are dramatic. But once that happens, then I can go to, uh, I can, I can imagine myself going to a CEO of a major uh, 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 company in the agricultural industry and saying, you're now responsible for uh, uh, this, these many uh, millions of hectares of destruction. And if we build into your management, KPIs that reward regeneration, here's how we can real-time measure, quarter by quarter measure, how much soil you're, you're creating, how much water you're being able to more effectively uh, uh, manage. Uh, uh, how much biodiversity uh, you're actually helping to bring to to revive, and and we and then I think there's no stopping us, Gregory. Once we mm -hmm. have, once we have those those scalable, affordable measuring instruments that can really tell you on on broad regional and national levels how much soil organic matter, uh, the water holding capacity, uh, the biological recharge of, of an ecosystem. And that you and I both know that we're on the lip of that. That it's, it's, it, it, we're, on, we're at the dawn of that new age of, of biologically enhanced farming that will result in the regeneration of the world and we're close and once that happens i i think that i mean i think in a couple of years this conversation it'll be interesting to to replay it because it's going to be old news the regenerative revolution will have won once we can get that that measuring technology perfected well <clears throat> i i sort of I, I, I agree with some caveats. I, I think I don't see a big, so any direct measurement protocol uses a model. There, there, sort of just the basic, the, the fundamentals of the science of ecosystems is no matter, the, the, the question isn't, is there a model or isn't there? The question is, you know, which model, how is it calibrated? You know, who generated it? What was its training data? So whether, whether it's a model that, you know, is telling you based on a lab sample, you know, if you have this much input into the sample and, you know, you incinerate it and you have that much output, there's still a model behind that. That's like a, an equation essentially that, could be better or worse, you know. Um, and so Comet, so, so for those, those who are listening, Comet is a um, federally funded uh, uh, process-based uh, model that has taken historical data from a lot of samples um, and has created a, 
predictive model that you can input as a farmer your practices and get a prediction about soil health outcomes like carbon sequestration. Um, so models like that are now, what I'm excited about is all of this converging into a, a common, rigorous, um, new scientific instrumentation where, where sensors, sampling, remote sensing, models, historical data um, are all integrated into a high integrity new sensory apparatus. Essentially, I think from my perspective, one of the things that Regen Network and, and the Carbon Underground through your work with the Soil Carbon Initiative and folks in Open Team, including Comet Tool, um, and, and people, you know, quick carbon, people who are doing satellite assessment and soil spectrometry work, new sensor development, all of these things. What we're actually working on is the largest scientific instrument that humanity has ever created. And that is the integration of multiple different sensor, sensory apparatuses, be they Sentinel-2, Copernicus sort of European Space Agency data or planet scope data on the private sector side or or soil sensors or these models that allow us to extrapolate and predict they all have their roles and and to me what's actually happening is the creation of a unified instrument which is you know expanding our human sensory apparatus to to reunify um I mean, I tend to think of it in sort of an esoteric way without, you know, being too hand wavy about this. I, I actually think that, the, that this represents our regaining of sort of a vestigial organ that humans used to have in a, in a cultural interface with our bioregion and our place. You know, we used to be able to sense and adapt and dance with nature in a, in a deeper and more beautiful way. And, and the, the, the beautiful paradox is I have the sense that we're going to regain that ability through science, but it's a new science. It's a, it's a holistic science. It's one that embraces, you know, and compares many different uh, sensors and many different models and allows everyone to sort of see and calibrate accordingly. And, and my sense is the same as yours, which is in the next, couple of years, it's not going to be very long, uh, an enormous upgrade in the ability of decision makers and markets to internalize previously externalized costs and value is going to come online. And the, you know, the inevitability of that is an embrace of regenerative agriculture, because it's the only thing that makes sense for everyone. So yeah, this is like a exactly. small addendum or, or amendment to how you're how you're talking about this, which I understand in the context of like, there's a real need for people to have rigor around what we're measuring and what we're, we're shooting for is outcomes, not just practices. Right. Okay, and there's a real so need in the discourse. All of those things are true, but you know, just like another step forward, I guess is what I'm pushing. <laughs> you, what you, the, the phrase you just used is, is a mantra for me. 
which is outcomes and not practices. Because what with, and, and again, I have high regard for the value and the importance of Comet. And, and in the absence of, of, very, of right now currently very expensive, prohibitively expensive uh, uh, direct measurement, Common has a, a, a very important place in, in, in this conversation. But, but it's based on practices. And, and yes, there, there's, there would be historic observable uh, results uh, from those practices. But what you once taught me, probably six or seven years ago when we were having uh, our early heated uh, debates uh, in the rainforest of Costa Rica is that there are people all over the world that have invented uh, new steps to that dance with nature. That we should be out there not telling them the practices to use, but learning from them, listening to them, observing what they're doing, letting human creativity and imagination. Um, the, the, the letting that choreography with nature uh, evolve and not, not lock ourselves into some orthodox set of practices that may not apply with consistent outcomes across soil types and food types and ecosystems around the world. So I am fully in agreement with you, Gregory, that the focus should be on outcomes and not on practices. And let me give you a really perfect example of that. When I, again, hearkening back to uh, that trip that uh, my, my daughter and I had to India talking with our, with our spice growers 15 years ago. And we go, into a, we, we, we go into a small community and we talk to the agronomist there. And we say to the agronomist, so, do you ask your farmers if they're doing these practices? And he went, oh, absolutely not. That, that's, not a, that, that's really not valuable information. We don't ask the farmers. We ask the insects. If the insect biodiversity, right. if the insect biodiversity is there, then the farmers must be doing it right. It, see, that's, that, that's what you want to do is you want to, you want to, yes, I mean, obviously, I'm a believer in organic agriculture. My farm is, has been either certified organic or biodynamic uh, for 25 plus years. I'm, I'm a partisan in that, and, and those are practices. But those practices may or may not relate to a real ecological outcome that we're looking for, which is regeneration. So what you need to do is you need to ask the insects. You need to ask the microbes. You need to ask the soil food web. You need, to, you need to actually look at above and below ground biodiversity. You have to look at, are you rebuilding soil? So yes, Comet and other model-driven systems have their place. But what you and I are looking forward to is... Uh, welcoming the the direct uh, uh, scientifically validated measuring of outcome 
And once we get to that, that's scalable and, and, um, and reliable and real time, then, uh, then corporations in their annual reports could, could be asked the following question. Uh, how many uh, tons of, of CO2 have been re-sequestered and converted into the living tissue of, of, of tilth in the soil because of the way you're engaged in, in sourcing? Or conversely, how many, how many tons of soil organic matter are you gasifying and destroying and contaminating in the atmosphere with as a result of your agriculture? I mean, once those data are available, then corporations are going to have to answer those questions. They're going to have to look in the mirror every single year and hopefully more regularly and say, have I destroyed the planet or have I revived and regenerated the planet? And then we as a society have an opportunity either on a level of policy or on a level of, of our personal checkbooks to punish and reward those companies based on whether they are destroying the world or reviving the world. And we are close to this. And so if people think this is pie in the sky and it's never gonna happen wrong, within a few years, we will be able to have a scorecard for corporations looking at their supply chains and seeing whether Corporation X is a net destroyer of the planet. We'll try and explain that to your, to your children and your, your community, that you're making money by destroying the planet. It doesn't work. This is how I believe that this will be an unbelievable catalyzing moment where the, the, where the protection and revival of the commons becomes inevitable. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, that's sort of fundamental to the mission of Region Network and um, our, right. our exploration of, of, you know, sort of ways to ensure that that happens with the highest degree of integrity in a, in a world that, is, that has become a post-truth world. Right. In a world in which, in, in a world in which simply having an expert sign off on something is no longer enough to trust because of various institutional and economic and perverse incentives that, that we sort of, we have to create a more rigorous structure and, you know, and that sense making has become digital and that we have to have a rigorous digital infrastructure to make it so that you can't game that um, because the, the consequences of, of, gaming that and and as you say as as consumers and as nation states and as society as a whole starts to demand regenerative outcomes in in a globalized society in which you can't go check the field yourself there's a need for a high degree of integrity not just on the scientific rigor but also on the the integrity of the data that 
you know, we know what sensor said what at what time and who owned it, who made it and who deployed it, <laughs> you know, um, and what model was created by whom and when it was used and how that essentially you create the whole breadcrumb trail for someone to make a claim. To me, that's currently what, you know, it's sort of a boring thing in, in the midst of the grand heroic transition we're taking place. But to me, it sort of just, it feels so fundamental to, to bake that kind of integrity in from the beginning, because my, my great fear or the hazard that I see in this transition is that we'll, we'll get five years into this movement that I feel is inevitable. Like we're at the transition and it's about to go exponential, but it will end up being short circuited by, you know, sort of perverse incentives and incentives to lie. And then, then the, instead of becoming a full societal transformation in which that's just the status quo and the way business happens, there'll be like a boom and bust. So everyone will tell the regenerative story you will actually follow through because there's not enough integrity around data and accountability where it needs to be. So we'll get five years in and it'll just sort of collapse under the weight of misinformation. And that's my, my, my great, to me, that's one of the biggest hazards that, that face us. It feels like we're, we've got wind at our backs. The movement will, the memes are there and the reasons are there and it's all very clear, but you know, we have to make sure that it doesn't turn into a boom and like greenwashing driven boom and bust. See that's, there's a tremendous danger to that because if people are economically uh, incentivized through their key performance indicators to deliver uh, outcomes, uh, people will uh, maybe game that system. But let me go back to that conversation with the agronomist in India that, that we had 15 years ago. And when I said, do you ask the farmers what I, I, I could have told you the full story and now I will, because it's a little bit harsh. But the full answer from him was, no, we don't ask the farmers because the farmers might lie. But the insects never lie. And the same can be said for at every level of the supply chain all the way up to the C-suite. People can be, for whatever reason, subjected to economic pressures, uh, peer group pressure to maybe uh, fudge things, to, to, to color things in ways that aren't accurate, to greenwash. But the insects don't lie. Ma, uh, uh, tons of soil organic matter, it, it's, it's, it either is or isn't there. And so once we get to a point where the measuring is, uh, is, is feasible, economical, rapid, real-time, uh, and, and there's data integrity and it can't be gamed, then there's no line. You don't have, it's not a matter of opinion. Either you're enhancing the ecosystem or you're not. And, and we are within months or just a few years of getting to that point, as you know, as you're a leader of. And once that happens, the, the era of greenwashing uh, is done because we just actually look at the data. Yeah, <clears throat> no, agreed. And that, those are the exact conditions 
that's the soil that the, you know, that's the, that's the new game. Right. That's the new game. As you started out in, when I, when I asked the question about, you know, what the best way to engage corporate leaders, you said, well, you know, if you, if you know the rules of the game and the starting point, you know what the end point will be. Whoever wins it, the outcome is the same. You know, right. the current game, the outcome is, you know, degradation of the commons that, that business relies on through this sort of strange sort of prisoners, ongoing prisoners dilemma right. <laughs> scenario. And to change that and escape that dynamic, we actually have to change the game. And it is a reinvention of, of the, the fabric of our economy to include, to bake in ecological value at, at sort of every level of accountability and decision-making. So it's a transformation of the game. And, you know, um, I do believe as, as you're articulating that, that you transform the rules of the game in that way. And, and we achieve what we need to, and all of the attributes of the game are set. The rules are right. The, the outcome will be as inevitable as the current outcomes exactly. are inevitable. And, and Gregory, isn't it thrilling? Because here we are, you and I, from our conversations in the rainforest, low those many years ago to today, we know that we're on the eve, that we're on the lip of that game-changing moment. And uh, whether it's the flux towers that Royal Dutch Shell is working on, or the, the sensors that companies around the world are working on, or the satellite technology, it's happening. And it will, and and for all of you who are listening, just kind of step back and take a breath and 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 survey the scene today, because the world is about to be a more wonderful place. It, it's it we are we are we are pregnant, beautifully, happily, wonderfully pregnant with with regenerative change, and it's about to happen. And I wake up hopeful every single morning. Because I know that that the that the ability to produce food like nature produces food, it will win. It will it will be how we ultimately feed the planet because there is no alternative, and it's actually a really exciting moment. I, I wake up uh, not in despair, not despondent, not overwhelmed by the 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 the, the, the crushing. Uh, uh, calamity of, of climate chaos, but I wake up hopeful knowing that with this challenge, we're about to launch the new rules for a new game. Yeah, <clears throat> agreed. And I think that that is such a story of inspiration and it, and it flies in the face of, I think, many people's perception of hopelessness. Um, and, it, you know, it's sort of incumbent on those of us who have been working in, in community on this particular um, angle to tell these stories. And so I'm really grateful for you, Tom, for coming and uh, bringing your inspiring and articulate voice to tell that story tell the story of the opportunity for engaging 
the existing power structures in the existing economy to be a core leader in transforming. And what's really beautiful to me is that I think that if we change the game as the way in the way that we've just described, the competitive dynamics shift so much that they become complementary to the health of the farmers and they change the arithmetic of reciprocity and the way that value accumulates and flows through the system just as fundamentally as because, you know, incorporating this new uh, sort of set of regenerative measurements and quantification, it just changes what profit means fundamentally. And so the game transforms. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful to be working on this grand project with you. I'm grateful for you coming to on the podcast to share that with listeners. And um, that feels like a really beautiful place to pause the conversation until we pick it back up again. Um, I know you've got some other things to work on today. So, well, it's um, been a joy, have... it's a joy, Gregory. And, uh, you know, as we would say at our farm, Porta Vida Adelante, let's, let's make this happen. Beautiful. Um, do you have any uh, resources or um, links or anything that you'd like to just share with guests who might be interested in uh, learning more about your work or um, engaging in opportunities that you see? Yeah, there are, there are three. Uh, uh, my organization uh, is the Carbon Underground, and uh, we have a um, website, www.thecarbonunderground.org, which uh, outlines our work around the world and is a, a clearinghouse of information on our, regenerate, on our point of view on the regenerative opportunity. I write a blog. Uh, which uh, my farm in Costa Rica, my farm and lodge, uh, which is Finca, F-I-N-C-A, Luna Nueva Lodge.com. And uh, we would love for people to visit uh, us to, uh, in, to sign up for uh, our, our newsletter and for my blog. So if you go to... Uh, uh, that website, uh, you can see my personal musings and rants and, and uh, prayers and, and, and hopes articulated. And then finally, the work of the Soil Carbon Initiative, uh, which is uh, uh, the combined efforts of the Carbon Underground and Green America and Megafood and, uh, and uh, Danone uh, White Wave and Ben and Jerry's Unilever. Uh, our work is at the SoilCarbonInitiative.org, uh, and we would invite people to uh, check out the work that we're doing to create a a standard for uh, for for gauging the success of regeneration that is based on outcomes and not on practices. So thank you for asking. And, um, and I hope people come and take advantage of the resources that we're making available. Beautiful. Uh, thank you so much, Tom. And uh, big love to you and the family there. And, uh, you know, stay healthy and stay safe. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Give our love to Amy and to your kids. And you stay healthy and love to everyone. Take care, my friend. You well. 
Take care. Bye-bye.